0: My name's Jeff Mulgan, Chief Executive of Nesta, and I'm joined here today by Roberto Mangabeira who is the primary author of a report produced with Nesta on what's happening to the knowledge economy. And I thought I'd start by asking you, really, with the, the origins of this work and this report and a, a stream of uh, uh, work you've been doing for many years, which in a way, is trying to understand what went wrong with the knowledge economy. The promise 10 or 20 years ago would be that thanks to the Internet and Google and so on, this would be an empowering move, which everyone
1: right across the world will be benefiting from.
0: So what, what went wrong with that promise?
1: What went wrong with it is that the knowledge economy was truncated in its development by virtue of being confined. It is now present in every part of the production system but present only as a set of fringes that exclude the vast majority of businesses and workers. And was that a deliberate conspiracy by someone to keep it confined? Uh, It has explanations, but a fundamental uh, reason for this confinement of the knowledge economy is uh, that it was, it is, a characteristic expression of what happens in history. There's an innovation in the world, and the innovation is often adopted in the form that least disturbs the ruling interests and the established preconceptions. That's what you could call the path of least resistance. And the knowledge economy in its insular form is a typical example of such a path of least resistance.
0: And yet to some people, this economy seems very accessible. Everyone can get Google. Half the world's population has
1: access to the internet. Small businesses can set up much more easily than a generation ago. The sale of the products and services of the knowledge economy is easily confused with the actual dissemination of the knowledge economy. Uh, A big company like Walmart or a small business like a laundromat does not become a participant in the knowledge economy, simply by virtue of using the gadgets produced and sold by this advanced practice of production. It is a set of practices, a different way of doing things, of making things and of inventing things. And no one joins it simply by using some of what it makes. So we we take part as consumers, but not as shapers and makers and producers. Not participants. Uh, in these islands, Mm. they don't exist solely in advanced manufacture. They exist also in intellectually dense services, and even in scientific or precision agriculture, but always in this insular form. And the insularity results in economic stagnation, given that the practice is denied to the majority, in the aggravation of inequality anchored in the hierarchical segmentation of the economy and in belittlement. The vast majority of humanity is confined to some kind of make work.
0: Mm. So you've, in your career, been a political thinker and an active politician, a minister. What's the political consequence of the confinement you've described?
1: Uh, It is the... uh, limitation of this potentially transformative vanguard to an elite, uh, uh, then the dispossession of and exclusion of the majority, uh, and thus the creation of resentments and discontent that are now manifest, for example, in the right in the rise of right-wing populism in much of the world conventional social democracy has been unable to master these problems. The progressives on the whole in the world have contented themselves with humanizing an economic order that they are unable to reimagine and remake.
0: And in some of the analysis you warn against just trying to distribute the benefits of a growing economy and of automation and artificial intelligence and so on, which is one of the social democratic responses, and argue the need to go upstream and change really the patterns
1: of participation and production. So we have to distinguish the more important from the less important. The more important is to reshape the arrangements that determine the fundamental distribution of advantage the less important is to try to create after the fact uh, a different distribution to correct it through retrospective and compensatory tax and transfer progressive taxation and social entitlements that redistributive and retrospective correction will always be very limited in its magnitude because If it rises above a modest threshold, it will begin to disorganize the economy and derange the established incentives to invest, save, and employ. And thus, the retrospective correction is really just part of this humanization effort.
0: And you would treat universal basic income, for example, as an extreme form of that compensatory...
1: Well, universal extreme. basic income can serve different functions. It could be part of a more ambitious transformative program if it has as its counterpart the, the opening of the economy to radical plasticity and experiment. And then we would say the individual has to be Uh, safe in a haven of protected immunities and capabilities so that he can strive in the midst of the storm.
0: Hmm.
1: The problem arises when we provide the protection, but do nothing about arousing the storm. And that in general is the path taken by the passive and conventional social Democrats who are the substitutes for the transformative program that we lack.
0: So let's turn to the rest of that program and really the response to the problems of confinement, because in in this report, you set out a lot of both diagnoses and a lot of prescriptions. Perhaps we might begin with the world of education. How much does the whole world of schooling and universities have to change to prepare people to be active participants
1: in, in the new knowledge economy? We need a completely different kind of education a kind of education that accords priority to the analytic and synthetic capabilities of the mind, that prefers selective depth to superficial encyclopedic coverage, that takes as the social context of education, cooperation, teamwork, rather than the juxtaposition of individualism and authoritarianism, and that approaches every field From contrasting points of view. So it's something completely different to today's schools. (laughs) From today's schools which emasculate the young and deliver them uh, to the higher stages of uh, education, prepared and defenseless for a life of intellectual servility.
0: And how much are the universities to blame for shaping schools as as sort of feeders for their own habits? The
1: the orthodoxies of the university system are defined by a series of forced marriages between method and subject matter, Mm. naturalizing uh, a particular approach to the different fields of inquiry. And then the national curriculums in the world infantilize these orthodoxies, projecting them back to the education of the young and inducing them to mistake the dominant ideas for the way things are. Uh, what we want is to create a form of basic education that is deeper and more radical than what is provided by the universities so that the young are early immunized uh, against this submission uh, that the universities expect them to accept.
0: So this, this vision of an education which cultivates agency sense of freedom the ability to to make the world and not be a slave of orthodoxies who are your allies in this project of reshaping education who are the, who are the enemies
1: who are the enemies so uh, traditionally education has had as its masters the family or the state the family says to the child become like me mm and the state says to the child, serve me. And what the school has to do under democracy is to recognize in every child a tongue-tied prophet and to be the voice of the future. Uh, How are we to do this? Because the future has no armies and we have to create a space in which the school can uh, throw the family and the state against each other and create an area for, for maneuver. Uh, and this area of maneuver is justified in the short term by the practical requirements of the knowledge economy. So the knowledge economy uh, is, a, is a a discipline in the service of liberation.
0: And that gives you some allies, does it? That points to who the coalition might be in favor of this Well, The allies program. can
1: result only from the the advance of the larger program. Every transformative project in the world creates its own constituency as it goes along. So we have a traditional declining earlier vanguard, Mm -hmm. industrial mass production, which has no future. The right-wing populists and the conventional social democrats have as one of the characteristic commitments of their political economy uh, simply to buy a few more years mm. for this form of production with no future. And uh, always in the definition and defense of a group or class interest, we have two ways to go. There is uh, one strategy that is socially exclusive and institutionally conservative. It says, Let's entrench ourselves in our existing niche in the system of production and defend that niche against all the enemies. Who are then the enemies? The enemies are the groups closest in that space, Mm. the temporary workers, the small business class, Mm. and so forth. Mm. Uh, The alternative is to approach the class or group interest in a form that is socially solidaristic and institutionally transformative says this niche has no future, we must convert mass production into something else. And in that project, the groups that we used to define as our enemies must become our allies, the small business class or or the temporary workers. So uh, it's not as if the constituency preceded the project. The constituency co-evolves with the project. That's the only way in which it can happen.
0: There's a famous comment, I think, of John Dewey, when he says that every project of reform has to create the public who will then be its the subject... It's own base,
1: that, yeah. It's own base, because it is, it is working towards a future that by definition does not, it does not yet exist, but it has to create a bridge from here to there. Uh, and the bridge consists in this reinterpretation of the interests and identities as they are now understood.
0: But you are giving a glimpse to the politicians who may be reading this report and hearing these arguments of a potential emergent coalition, which links together perhaps some big firms, but also many small firms in more marginalized areas, the precarious workers, but also perhaps the children. Let's take an example
1: of a group that has vast importance in the world, the small business class, the petty bourgeoisie. In the 20th century, the European left elected this class as its enemy and it then became the mainstay of the right-wing movements uh, in Europe. Uh, Now objectively there are more petty bourgeois than there are industrial proletarians in the world and if we define this class status subjectively and not just objectively as the aspiration to a modicum of economic independence it is the majority of humanity. So the progressives, the would-be transformative agents, have to meet them on their own terms and offer them a range of options, broader, more magnanimous, with greater potential than what is by default the object of its aspiration, traditional, archaic, isolated family business based on self-exploitation and family-saving.
0: And the entrepreneurial impulse is one expression of the kind of creativity, the sense of possibility which you talk about, but of course has been always uncomfortable for the traditional left, which never really liked entrepreneurs. The fundamental
1: tragedy of these societies is is just this, that there is in the world uh, a vast, seething cauldron of human energy and intensity most of which goes to waste, Mm. goes up in smoke for lack of opportunity and instruments. The uh, deepening and dissemination of the knowledge economy offers an opportunity to to solve this problem Uh, and to create a form of economic life that allows us to imagine that instead of just achieving freedom from the economy, we could hope for freedom in the economy.
0: Yeah, and a gr- great deal of our work at Nestor is in a way about how to harness more of that energy put in place, the system, structures, finance, to help people turn their ideas into something real, which happens in a few pockets of the economy, but for most people, most of the time uh, is impossible. C- can I take you though to one of the possible tensions of, of the argument? Mm-hmm. Uh, you highlight the importance of the small business. Uh, um, and another part of the argument, though, is about property rights and what's happening to conceptions of property now and in the future. And for most of those people, their instinct is to believe that property is crucial uh, a crucial source of protection and security. And they're very anxious when anyone starts questioning property rights. How do you persuade those people that a different way of thinking about property is in their interest?
1: So there is a confusion in the ideological debate in the world. The debate is represented as a debate between the left that gives priority to equality against the background of the established economic and political arrangements and the right that gives priority to freedom against the background of the same arrangements. So it's shallow equality against shallow freedom. So on the left, the combination of the egalitarian commitment with the institutional conservatism has as its pragmatic residue, the narrow focus on retrospective correction through progressive taxation and social entitlements and the abandonment of the structural change in general and of any attempt to devise a progressive approach to the supply side of the economy in particular. On the right, it's the capture of the idea of freedom by the reification of a single dogmatic form of economic decentralization. The premise is that if Robinson Crusoe trades on his island long enough, he will eventually reproduce spontaneously the entire system of 19th century German private law. A complete fantasy because the market economy has no natural and necessary form. Uh, even at the most abstract level, a market economy has two dimensions. One dimension is the absolute level of economic decentralization. The number of economic agents able to bargain on their own initiative and for their own account. The other dimension is the degree of control that each of those agents has over the resources at his command, the absoluteness and perpetuity of the control. And the established ideology supposes that these two dimensions go together, but they don't. Because we can easily imagine a system in which we could increase the level of absolute decentralization by relativizing or qualifying the absoluteness of the control by having conditional or temporary claims to productive resources. Could you give an
0: example of that? So
1: let's have a thought experiment. We'll just imagine that in the future, the fundamental form of access will be this. The state will hold in trust the productive resources of society. And any group of people will be able to bid away the temporary use of those productive resources by offering society the highest rate of return for them and so long as they can offer the highest rate of return and there are no better and more qualified bidders they get to use them temporarily and conditionally
0: so like and
1: and the underlying rate of interest which is the charge for this use of productive resources became becomes the basic form of state finance instead of taxation so We could imagine that in such a market economy, the traditional unified property right would continue to exist in certain domains of action. Mm. It has an advantage. Its advantage is to allow an entrepreneur to do at his own risk something in which no one else believes. Mm. But in many other parts of economic life, uh, we would have a, a multiplication of alternative regimes a private and social property and contract. So the market economy would cease to be crucified on the cross of a single version of itself. Mm. And its principle of anarchic and organized experimentation would turn back against itself. Uh, and that would be a higher form. Mm. So once we begin to think of that way, our whole conception of the relation between Right and left changes, conservative and progressive. Who is the the conservative? The conservative is the one who uh, understands and implements ideals of both freedom and equality against the background of an untransformed structure and uh, repudiates as romantic or utopian the idea that we can ascend to a higher form of life. Uh, And who then is the progressive? The progressive is the one who uh, believes that we can become bigger together and who takes as his method of action the transformation of the structure, not by some imaginary systemic substitution of one regime for another, but by fragmentary but nevertheless cumulative change in the structure. So just
0: just to pursue that, one of the the, the fears of exactly the small business groups you would like to attract is that the state is, by tendency at least, predatory and incompetent. Uh, And therefore, the traditional property right, etc., is a defense against that. What you've described depends on there being a plausible way of recasting the state as, uh, as open, creative, experimental, a, an entirely different ethos of governing to the one which the classic conservative ideologies are based on. So
1: how is that parallel project to be? But this is not advanced? a scheme of the discretionary allocation of resources by the state. It's the creation of a, 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 a framework that organizes a large range of ways in which people can have decentralized access to productive resources. But it depends on the state to be trustworthy as the guardian or curator of those systems. It depends on the law and the content of the law. And we must not confuse what the law does with what the state does. So the law establishes this framework and it shouldn't be this one-sided dogmatic framework that says, this is the only form of economic decentralization. Uh, the result of that is uh, radically to limit our opportunities for decentralized initiative mm. and to uh, create systems of private oppression, such as we have in the existing market order. And when we reify the market economy in that form, every proposal for change will be misinterpreted as an intervention in the market. The it's state. not an intervention yeah, yeah. in the market by the state. Mm-hmm. It's the creation of a different kind of market. Yeah. So this is a case for a genuine radical pluralism as opposed to a superficial so that's pluralism. That's right. So, this, so the, the, the paradigm of the inherited ideological debate is it's the state against the market. Now we have a different idea that is emerging in the world. Uh, Economic, social, and political pluralism have no natural form. And there is a contest then among the alternative forms of those three varieties of pluralism. This is a higher debate. And that debate is in turn connected to an idea of the nation. So what is the basis for national difference in the world? is that society has no natural form and that humanity develops its powers only by developing them in different directions. The nations are not to be understood as tribes based on quasi-biological descent or homogeneity, but as, uh, as projects, as experiments in a certain way of being human, that take distinct institutional forms. Uh, what we find in the world now is the evisceration of the tangible collective identities as countries imitate one another and give up parts of themselves in order to flourish. Then two nations live side by side and come to hate each other, not because they're different, but because they're becoming alike and want to be different. Then to this point, particularly poisonous character of the contemporary nationalism, there are two responses. One is the response of liberal cosmopolitanism, which says, suppress the will to difference. Become even more like <laughs> And the other is the response of radical democracy, which is equip the will to difference, mm-hmm. create the experimental economies and polities, which will allow us to create difference. Difference is not the problem. Difference is the solution. Yeah but it has to be created.
0: So so tell us a little bit more about the project then, the national project and the role of the state in it, because for some people assume such a project requires a a manifesto, a program, a set of things which are then implemented from top down, perhaps by a strong leader or a strong political party. But you're often advocating almost an opposite process of discovery, experiment and seeking and
1: co-creation with citizens. It still has to be formulated. It requires ideas. Who by? It has to be the object of a doctrine Mm -hmm. by these movements in humanity. So now a common belief of the progressives is that there is a universal orthodoxy, a liberalized social democracy or uh, its equivalents. North Atlantic elites. Get to Denmark. uh, Have this project of combining the social protection of the Europeans, with the economic flexibility of the Americans, with only marginal institutional changes. And so that's the universal orthodoxy. And then there would be in the world a series of local heresies, which are result from the combination of elements of this orthodoxy with local inventions. The truth is that humanity is all connected by a chain of analogies, and that A universal orthodoxy can be successfully resisted only by a universalizing heresy as liberalism and socialism were in the 19th century. So I understand these proposals, such as the proposal for a deepened and disseminated knowledge economy, as a universalizing heresy. It's for the whole world. And uh, it, it takes local forms, but it's not just a collection of local heresies. The whole has to add up to something coherent and has a movement form at it's some a, point it's a it's a direction so the direction is the energizing of humanity or the elevation of the ordinary existence of the ordinary man and woman to a higher level of intensity scope and capability this idea which is always the central idea in politics of greatness yeah. of largeness this idea that we become more human by becoming more godlike. And uh, this we do by refusing idolatry of the institutional arrangements and by changing them. And changing not just their content, but their character, their quality, so that they don't appear to us as if they were an alien fate. We create structures that organize their own revision so that we, can keep the last word to ourselves rather than giving the last word to them so that we can engage in them without surrendering to them so that we can be both insiders and outsiders, which is a definition of freedom.
0: So just to pursue that, I think the, the sort of orthodoxy, the liberal social democratic orthodoxy of a sort of fusion of American economic dynamism, European welfare states and so on, is a very cool vision of a society sort of end of history which has quietened down yes. into a calm yes. uh, peacefulness what you're advocating is something very very different very hot, incandescent yeah, full of life and therefore probably quite scary for some people
1: yes so so uh, we have to secure the individual in a haven of protected immunities and capabilities. Uh, so think of it this way, by analogy to the relation of a parent to a child. The parent says to the child, I love you unconditionally. So you're secure, you have a secure place in the world. Now go out into the world and raise a storm. So we have now this discourse of fundamental rights in which we have the part about the love, the security, but where's the part Where about the storm? the storm? Those those two parts have to go together. And so what, what we want is the agent, the agent who can be like the seraph Abdil in Paradise Lost, unseduced, unterrified, unshaken, uh, and who secure in this haven of capacities can 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 go out into this in this struggle and through struggle with the world and with himself become bigger and become more godlike uh, and die only once.
0: Roberto Mangaro Unga, let us hope you are starting a healthy, productive storm here. Thank you very much. Thank you.